I'm more shocked when something works than when it doesn't. And so first I was like, I just didn't believe that it actually worked. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 65 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Luke Chang from Dartmouth College's Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. He'll talk with us about his research into how our beliefs and doctors' expectations of how effective a treatment will be can influence our body's experience of, and responses to, pain. Here's Luke Chang. I'm Luke Chang. Um, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and grew up in Denver, Colorado. I attended college at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and then I did a master's in psychology at the New School for Social Research in New York. And then I transferred to start my PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, and then completed a clinical internship in behavioral medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, and then a, a postdoc fellowship in neuroimaging methods and placebos and pain research with Tor Wager at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I started as an assistant professor at Dartmouth College in 2015. So I've been here about four years. You know, being trained as a clinician, I was always really interested in how like psychotherapy worked. And in the beginning, I was like really skeptical about it. So I was actually started being trained as a neuropsychologist, but then found that I actually enjoyed doing therapy much more than doing assessments. And one of the things that I found surprising was that I was pretty convinced that people were getting better doing different types of therapies, but I wasn't exactly convinced that of the reason why they were getting better. And there's, I wouldn't say like a lot of research, but there's a lot of um, papers talking about things called nonspecific factors. And so these are things that like how the, the provider connects with the patient or um, maybe instills hope or manipulates expectations that can impact the, the patient's outcomes. And that's regardless of the technique that you're using. And those have been thought to account for a lot of the variance in how, at least in psychotherapy research, but they haven't been studied very systematically yet. I was always really interested in this, and then can we find a way to actually study this? Coined by the Austrian psychoanalyst Wilhelm Steghill in 1924, somatization is the process by which psychological distress may be expressed through physical symptoms, such as head and stomach aches. As it's an area of Luke's expertise, we begin our conversation by asking him how he got interested in the topic. So I've actually been interested in expectations for a really long time. I guess originally even like, how do we make decisions, what's morality, those types of like bigger questions, and that, that kind of got me into the decision-making world. And then um, in graduate school, um, I did a lot of work using like game theory to try to study how people interact in the context of decisions in these economic games. And most of the work that I was involved in, in some way involved like some type of expectation. So it might be a social norm that it's like a shared expectation for which of many different players might converge on, or you might be thinking about what another player might be thinking. So first and second order beliefs. And we did a lot of expectation manipulations. And then clinically, I was really interested in like how therapy worked and a lot of the clinical experiences I was doing on while I was training in graduate school and then also during internship were in behavioral medicine. And I, I was really interested in somatization. So how does like the body and brain give rise to these different types of feelings or pain? And it's not really clear exactly how that all works, but it's, it's really interesting. Um, so a lot of the patients I would see were on the GI ward or in surgery you know, recovery or in, in different domains in psychiatry. Um, so I got to see lots of like kind of chronic medical conditions and how families and couples deal with that. And, and also really interesting um, somatization cases. 
So when I was trying to figure out what I'm to do for a postdoc, I was really interested in trying to bring my clinical interest in pain and somatization together with my research that was more on like social interactions and decision-making and expectations. Researchers' desire to minimize the effects of patients' and clinicians' expectations has led to the adoption of the double-blind, randomized clinical trial as the gold standard for testing new medical treatments. In theory, both the physician and the patient are unaware of whether the patients are being administered a new treatment or a placebo in such experiments. But, as we'll hear more about in a moment, Luke and his team's study employed a mock, single-blind design in which doctors believed that they were administering a real analgesic cream or a sham one though in reality, both creams were inert. Next, Luke explains what led him to explore interactions within two-person dyads, such as he did in this study. So I've been trying to find ways to study social interactions for a few years, like in, including during my postdoc, because even in the field of social psychology, which has a lot of scientists in it, there's not that many who focus on the interaction part. A lot of it's on like cognition or perception, or there's many other areas. And one of the reasons why I think people don't really study is because it's really hard to collect data um, objectively. And then it's also really hard to design experiments where you can manipulate factors to see how it impacts the interaction. So there's been a, a lot of research, I guess, like starting in like the 30s and 40s when it really picked up, showing that people's expectations about treatment success seem to impact their outcomes in many different domains. So that, that eventually led to like the rise of like the, the double blind clinical trial. So the first ones of that were published until basically the 40s. And then surprisingly, it wasn't even required by the FDA until like the 70s to do double-blind clinical trials. I would have assumed it would have been much earlier. So we do double-blind studies when you can do them. So in a lot of like medicines, for example, only the pharmacist will know which one's which. But in psychotherapy, it's like impossible to do double-blind trials. The therapists always know what type of treatment they're administering. And then in practice, you know, physicians aren't usually administering placebo treatments, but they're always administering some type of treatment over another one. And they'll have some belief about the likelihood how well it's going to work for that patient, um, given the symptoms and the problem that they've conceptualized. So the, the single blind was like, I think that was the part that we're really interested in being able to model. Luke and his colleagues were interested in learning whether people playing the role of doctors might transmit their expectations about the effectiveness of medications to patients when the doctors were falsely led to believe that an analgesic was either a real treatment or a placebo. Ryan and I asked Luke to describe the clever deceptions required for the study. So we were really interested in if we could find a way to show like a causal manipulation, that it's, it's the doctor's expectations that are the key thing that drives placebo effects. We thought about doing real doctors and real patients, but then there's some selection issues. So doctors believe things really strongly, like certain treatments might work better. So it was hard to remove all those types of biases. And they also might be more confident when they talk to patients or have been biased to go into the profession in the first place because they're more empathic. Um, so one of the key things was like that we wanted to just randomly assign people to be in the role of doctors or patient. And that also that it's not just like one doctor. So it's not like we had a confederate. We wanted to show that it, it would work pretty much for any random person that gets selected to be in the study. So the participants were instructed that we were interested in studying the role of interactions in these simulated clinical context. And so they knew that they were going to be randomly assigned to these different roles. And then we actually had them dress up. We had scrubs for the doctors and then they wore like a lab coat. And then the patients wore like a gown over the other clothes. Um, and then they both got private instructions about how the experiment was going to go. So they, they had kind of different information going in. And so the design has like two parts. So the first part is essentially like a classic design in the placebo conditioning literature. So the doctor receives two different creams on different parts of their forearm. And then we basically told them that we call it the cream thermidol. And 
the idea was that it would actually impact the thermal receptors in, in your peripheral nervous system. And that there was like some amount of half-life that it had to wear off. So they had to wait for a little bit for the cream to wear off before we did the other cream. And then we delivered thermal stimulation to each of the different creams. And the machine gives lower temperatures when it's on that cream. So they believe that one cream is an active treatment and one is like a sham or a placebo. And that's what creates this expectation and reinforces it through the learning process. And so that's basically what the doctors did. And that's kind of like a standard um, design. So we told them which cream was which, and then they experienced it to believe that it actually worked. The second part was we tried to like minimize everything. So the doctor couldn't tell the patient which cream was which. So it was a single blind design. And then they basically would introduce themselves to the patient being like, I'm, you know, Dr. So-and-so, and um, this is what the study's about. And I'm going to be administering this cream and some pain. Um, and then also we had an experimenter in the room just for safety purposes. And then they applied the cream. And then when the patients were receiving the pain, they received the exact same temperature in each condition. And it's, it's all kind of controlled through a computer, but it was actually the doctors themselves that were administering the, the pain um, directly to the patient. And so then that allows us to see the impact of the doctor's expectations that gets transmitted somehow to the patient to see if that impacted the patient's perception of pain. In 1803, the new medical dictionary defined placebos as any medicine adapted more to please than to benefit the patient. And although this definition may have been an unflattering one, it also didn't necessarily imply that they have no effect. Given the long history of such remedies, Doug and I were curious what prior research has found with regard to their efficacy. So around the late 70s, there were some dentists um, studying pain and analgesics, and they found that giving an opioid antagonist would basically make patients feel more pain than the control condition. And they were able to do a series of studies showing that part of the reason why placebos work for analgesia is because your, your brain releases endogenous opioids. And using these opioid antagonists, they were actually blocking it, which is why people were perceiving more pain. So the placebo response itself has its own um, physiological mechanism, which is, I think, pretty interesting. And it's studied in many different domains. So it's part, you know, a lot of it's studied in the context of pain. But it's also studied in placebo conditioning on dopamine with Parkinson's patients. Um, there's a lot of work, um, more recent stuff on like cannabinoid receptors mediating it. And then also there's evidence that your like immune system and digestive system show some properties of conditioning consistent with like this placebo conditioning paradigms. And there's an enormous literature on placebos from the patient perspective. So we know that the doctor's expectations also matter, but it's never really been quantified to the degree to how much they mattered. And so that was basically one of the things we were trying to set out in the study. Can we manipulate the doctor's beliefs and then show that that gets transferred over a social interaction that affects the patient's outcomes? The placebo effect is the reason that all FDA-approved drugs have to go through a double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial before being approved for use. But this gold standard of evidence only works if participants remain blinded to whether they're on the real treatment or the placebo. However, doing so can be challenging, particularly when a course of treatment is well known for its side effects, such as hair loss during chemotherapy. Luke talked with us about how researchers sometimes create placebos which, for this very reason, aren't just inert sugar pills, but rather actively induce side effects. In most clinical trials, there's huge unblinding effects because of side effects. So it depends on the kind of medicine and stuff, but some of the ones that have been reported, the doctors can guess with like 80 to 100% accuracy which condition the, the patient's in. And the patients usually like, it depends, again, it depends on the type of medication, but like 60 to 80% of the time can guess which treatment they're in based on the side effect profiles. 
So let's take the case of like antidepressants, um, which have a lot of side effects, but the antidepressants work really well for treating depression for, you know, mild to moderate and to varying degrees for severe depression. But placebos also work really, really, really well for mild to moderate depression. And if you have an active placebo, one with side effects, they're basically indistinguishable from each other. And I had an undergraduate in this power belief class I teach, and then they'll have to do a research project, like a meta-analysis where they'll come up with some question that they want to test. Um, and then they'll have to code a bunch of studies and then test it using like R or something. But the first year I did this, this meta-analysis project idea, one of the students did one where she took, I can't remember exactly this, maybe like 14 different antidepressants and got their side effect profiles from the FDA and then did basically a mini meta-analysis for each one to get the overall effect size. And basically was trying to figure out which side effects seemed to lead to a, a stronger effect size. And it turns out it was like nausea. So antidepressants that have more um, symptoms elicit nausea, they seem to have stronger effect sizes. And it's a particularly interesting symptom in the context of healing because you know, from over the course of history, that's a common side effect of medicines that seem to be working really well. Severe treatments as you start throwing up and getting sick, you know, you have some reason to think that that's actually making you heal. How we've been thinking about it is if you start experiencing these side effects, you're like, oh, the treatment's actually working. This seems like it's supposed to happen. And then you think that you're getting the real treatment and you should be improving. But there's been some other studies that showed that if you look at the amount of side effects that uh, participants experienced, it correlates with the overall effect size of the study across studies. And we've done some work, which we never ended up publishing, where basically you're trying to guess like what someone's response is going to be or predict what someone's response is going to be. And so we used like a reinforcement learning framework where you're getting feedback and the feedback is whether you experience any side effects or not. So we got some data from a clinical trial where they had some of this data at least recorded. And then we try to see if you would update your beliefs faster that you're in a treatment and if that would predict your treatment response. And it, it looked like it was working, but we didn't fully work out all the controls to convince ourselves that it was like a real thing. But the side effect thing, I think, is really interesting. And I think it can actually it really augment or enhance um, these placebo effects. Luke and his team study involved three related experiments. The first involved both patients' and doctors' facial expressions being recorded using custom head-mounted video cameras, combined with self-assessments completed by patients, as well as measures of their sweat gland activity. These data were later used to train a computational algorithm, which predicts pain through facial expressions alone, as Luke explains next. And some of the pilot studies that we had done, um, we had tried using things like mounting cameras on tripods. Um, we've also tried some where you mount them on the wall and they have like controls where you can like zoom in and tilt. But one of the issues we always had was when you're in interaction, that's different than when you're just like working on a computer experiment because people will tend to move around a lot and they would go out of frame of the camera. So it was hard to track them. So one of the engineering feats that we came up with was to try to come up with a way just to mount them on each participant's head so that when they would move, it was kind of in, the cameras were mounted. So it was invariant to the rotation. And the, the model that we kind of used was that in motion capture studios, they have these things that mount on your head with a camera on it, but they're, they're very pricey. So we just came up with a way to build our own. I actually had some undergraduates who made some 3D models of the parts, and then we just um, printed them in our engineering school and then mounted GoPros on them. And I had some colleagues when I was in graduate school that had developed some software that uses computer vision to try to convert pixels into representations of facial expressions that are called action units. Um, and these basically refer to like groups of muscles 
that you can kind of combine in different ways to categorize different facial expressions. And these were developed by Paul Ackman a long time ago when he was trying to find a way to codify a system on how we can study facial expressions. We followed up by asking Luke for more details on how these video recordings of people experiencing pain were analyzed to train this model. For every pain trial, so they get administered pain, that it takes about two seconds for it to ramp up, and then it lasts about seven seconds, and then it ramps down for about two seconds. So I think it was about 12 seconds, roughly, that they were the patients were experiencing pain. And then you normally like would have like a if you record like people's second by second perceptions of how they're feeling, you would kind of get a slope that it's delayed after the, the stimulus delivery and then kind of persists longer and keeps rising until after people are receiving the pain and then it, it decays back down to baseline and the skin conductance responses kind of fit that same pattern. And we assumed that the facial expressions would probably have something like that as well. So what we did was that the cameras are recording like pixels and then those get converted into action units and the particular software we're using, it's like a deep convolutional neural net it turns the pixels into action unit representations. You get one per frame. And so we're recording these videos through the whole experiment. So we just have this continuous stream of what the action unit predicted probabilities are for every frame. Then we basically trained our own model to predict pain. And it, it's really simple. It's just a regression model. The concept came from some earlier work that was done by Tor Wager on trying to find, is there a way we can have an objective measurement of pain from the brain itself? And so he administered pain to people in the scanner and basically found a way to predict the intensity of their their pain from basically patterns of brain activations. And it ended up being like really, really reliable. And we can also take that same kind of idea or, or methodology and apply it to these facial expressions. So let's say we have 20 action units and we can create a, a feature representation in, in that space that we can use to predict how much pain people are feeling. So we used a couple different features. So one was like, what's the maximum intensity that I ever got and then the minimum intensity for every action unit, and then also the amount of time it took to get to the maximum. So for every action unit, we had these three different features we used. And it corresponds to, there's a, like a whole other literature on pain and facial expressions. And we basically kind of just replicate what they've been finding over and over again, where you kind of like get your eyebrows raised, but your eyes kind of close. And then you kind of like grimace almost like you pull your lips back. And so we train the model using um, the doctors when they were receiving the pain in, in the first stage. So the model, it's it's a penalized regression, and it basically had to be able to predict a new subject at a sample, and that's that's how we evaluated it. That basically gives us like one model, so it should generalize over all subjects that we can then apply to the patients to get um, an idea of how much pain that the model thinks that they're experiencing. Luke and his colleagues' first study examined if the transmission of beliefs between doctor and patient was mediated by the doctor's facial expressions. And their second study sought to replicate this with a new sample of participants and several tweaks to the experimental setup. We'll hear what they found after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Altmetric. At Altmetric, we help researchers track and analyze the online activity around scholarly research outputs. And if you like passing science, you may also enjoy our podcast series, The Altmetric Podcast. Join me, Lucy Goodchild, as we explore the science stories that are being discussed the most online so you can find out why. You can find our show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, back to passing science. Here again is Luke Chang. If we use the pain facial expression model and then apply it to the doctors who weren't actually experiencing pain at all, the model actually showed um, lower displays of the doctors expressing pain when the doctors believed the treatment to be working as well. And then when the doctors believed that they were delivering the real treatment, patients reported feeling less pain, but then also 
the facial expressions showed also show that predicting like less behavioral displays of pain. And I'm more shocked when something works than when it doesn't. And so first I was like, I just didn't believe that it actually worked. I, I just figured that the research assistants or the experimenters had done something to kind of tip the hand or did done something else. So first I just wanted to see if we were going to be able to replicate it. Um, and then we had some other things. It was like one experimenter was in the room for all of them. So we had two experimenters to see if that impacted. We also like, well, maybe the temperature matters. So we tried a couple different temperatures and we'd kind of basically only done conditions where the control cream was delivered first and then the thermidol. Previous work that was done in, um, in Tor Wager's lab, who's a co-author on this and also was my postdoc mentor, they had found almost sort of accidentally that if you do the placebo condition first, you often don't get the placebo response. But if you do the control first, then you get it fairly reliably. So one idea is that the way perception works is it's it's sort of like a relative um, state comparison. So when things feel really hot, it's not that we're able to have an absolute magnitude estimate of like what the temperature is. We just know that prior to the previous state, it's a lot hotter than it was. And so if you apply like something that's hot, but it's really cold outside, then that's going to feel more hot than if it's really, really hot outside and you apply something hot. So it could be something like that. It's this relative judgment. So you kind of need a reference point. And that's kind of how I'm thinking about the problem. And a lot of times if you have like chronic pain or if you're you know, depressed or have a migraine or any of these other things where placebos have been explored, you already have like a current state. And so any change in that will be relative to that current state. But if you're like a healthy participant in these studies, you're not in chronic pain or anything. So you have to kind of create these things first. So we knew going in that we were expecting to see this reference dependent effect, but there's a strong possibility that it could have been a habituation effect, meaning that so basically the first time you experience any type of the thermal stimulation, it, it hurts. Um, it's, it's basically like the equivalent of like pouring like hot coffee on your arm. So you'll, you'll kind of see your skin turn red, but it won't like blister. But then over time, the more times you get stimulated at the same site, you actually see a habituation where it decreases pretty dramatically. So one of the things we wanted to rule out was that it wasn't um, a habituation effect. So we also did like the full counterbalancing. It didn't fully rule it out, but it didn't seem like it was entirely habituation either. Um, so what we found was that we replicate the original effect in this with across experimenters and um, different levels of temperature intensities. But when we flip it, like so when the you get the thermal first and the control cream second, um, we didn't see the effect, but it also wasn't exactly habituation where the control cream was lower also. So it was kind of like ambiguous. As solid as Luke and his team's findings were, peer reviewers of their paper made several critiques that required that they return to the lab to carry out a final study, as Luke describes next. I've submitted a lot of papers and I've had a lot of terrible reviews, and this was one of the better review processes I've ever had um, of any paper. So it went relatively fast. The reviewers like got it and they were really supportive and had a lot of really great constructive criticism. So one, they weren't fully convinced of our extinction or this habituation effect. So we had to come up with a stronger way to try to show that. And one reviewer was really worried about that maybe because they're wearing these cameras and it's not very natural that people might be more self-conscious or more attending or more expressive with their facial expressions. So we want to rule that out. And then another reviewer raised another really great critique that the experimenters knew what condition the patients were in. And so even though it's still a second order belief transmission, it could have been from the experimenter to the patient rather than the doctor to the patient. The third study, we also made it so the experimenter who was in the room didn't know which treatment was which. So they were blind to it. So only the doctor knew which one was which. The experimental design we used was um, uh, to show there wasn't habituation was, but, but also controlling for the fact that or accommodating that there's this um, 
this kind of known issue with having the control go first. We used an ABVA design. So it was every participant, it's within subject, but they get the control cream, then the placebo cream, then the placebo cream, and then the control cream. And then if it's habituation, then you just expect it to go down and stay down. But if it's if it's not, then you expect it to kind of go back up for the last um, control condition. And that's basically what we found in both in terms of self-reported pain and also in, with the uh, skin conductance response. The team's third study also replicated their previous findings, suggesting that doctors' subtle facial cues do indeed transmit placebo effects. But since quantitative studies are better at identifying what's going on than they are at explaining why, we asked Luke what some alternative explanations of their findings might be. Yeah, so like why, why does it work or how, how is it even happening? So one idea is that they're like hyper-tuned to when they think the treatment's going to work to the patient. So they're, they're paying more attention to them. Um, they might be more empathic or caring or warming, more perceptive. And these subtle kind of like nonverbal cues might be perceived by the patient. And that's what gives rise to them perceiving and what they self-report is feeling like the doctor was more empathic in that condition compared to the other. And so that might be the mechanism by which the bleeds are getting transmitted and also that the patients are feeling better. Again, we don't really know. And, and another possibility is it's the other way. So they could feel less pain because there's some type of social interaction or some, something about being supported by another person that makes you feel better. And then you misattribute that feeling to the that it's actually the cream that's working. Um, and I, I don't know if that's like what's happening, but that's one possibility. Another possibility is that the doctor does something to convey that they have a lot of confidence that this treatment's going to work. And then so the patient thinks, oh, this must be the good treatment. It's kind of like how a normal placebo mechanism might work, where they believe that the treatment's working. And then so it has the self-fulfilling prophecy effect where it starts feeling like they, they feel less pain that way. We wrapped up our conversation by asking Luke if he's planning on extending this line of research into what might make otherwise effective treatments become ineffective or placebos become effective. We have some follow-up things we're looking at this data set and collecting some other ones to find out, well, like if you have not maybe necessarily what the patient thought, but if you have other third parties watch the doctor's videos, is there any systematic difference in how they're expressing? Do they seem warmer? Are they paying more attention? Or do they seem more confident? So keeping the raters blind, but trying to get some other information about what the doctors might have been doing differently in the two different conditions. And then another one is we have this assumption that everybody expressed pain the same way, but it's possible that there's many different types of pain facial expressions and that could be across people or even within a person. And so we're also trying to do things to see if we can model that better, kind of using like unsupervised learning techniques to identify different patterns of pain facial expressions. And then there's a group who's been doing um, acupuncture while they do what's called hyperscanning. So they have like a doctor in one, like an acupuncturist, and then a patient in the other one. And then I think it's like some type of electrical stimulation. So the doctor will actually deliver the treatment by hitting a button and then it goes and they get real time. They're streaming video to each other so they can see each other. It's, it's a really impressive setup. I don't, I'm not sure if they published this yet, but they've been working on it for many years. So one idea is that we want to scan, although I've been a little hesitant because I'm not sure it's going to work. I think there's something about the interaction that's important. And if the doctor's not in the room or if you can't see them, I'm not sure how it's going to work. Um, so we haven't tested it yet, but that's one idea. Another one is to try to test it with real doctors and patients in a clinic somewhere to see if it generalizes. And I would expect that it would actually be stronger in that context, at least with this laboratory treatment of pain, acute pain, not necessarily chronic pain. That was Luke Chang discussing his article, Socially Transmitted Placebo Effects, which he published with Tor Weger and four other researchers on October 21st, 2019 in the journal Nature Human Behavior. 
You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org E65, along with bonus audio and other materials we discuss during the episode. As we begin the new year, you might like to keep an eye on who we're planning to have on the show in 2020, and maybe even suggest questions for Doug and me to ask them. You can now do so at parsingscience.org upcoming. We'll also be highlighting our newly booked scientists in our weekly newsletter. So if you're interested in joining the conversation, you can sign up at parsingscience.org newsletter. Next time in episode 66 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Catherine Wood from the University of Illinois' Department of Psychology. She'll talk with us about her research with Daniel Simons, the scientist behind the famous invisible gorilla experiment, into if and when people notice unexpected objects in inattentional blindness tasks inattentional blindness reveals how the attentional system is prioritizing information in kind of a similar way that visual illusions reveal how color constancy is computed or how we figure out linear perspective and relative size and so on. We hope that you'll join us again.